For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill, and sitting in this week for Ryan Kiesel as ACLU Oklahoma Director of Policy and Advocacy, Nicole McAfee. Oklahoma lawmakers are getting a 35% pay raise next year. The Legislative Compensation Board increased pay for legislators from $35,000 to more than $47,000. Neva, why do you think the bump was approved? Well, I think it was uh, something that uh, clearly was uh, uh, the the board felt like was long overdue. And I think it was probably uh, two years later a reaction to the punitive uh, reduction, the $3,400 reduction that just kind of came out of the blue. Uh, on lawmakers. So I think when you look at this, I mean, the kind of the sticker shock of the 35% is something that uh, everyone kind of, um, it, it becomes that headline for a moment. But in the in the broader scheme of things, I think that people recognize that uh, as one of the comments was made, if you are going to have uh, people run for office, um, you either you, you have to have a, a, a pay scale that is commensurate with wanting the kind of people that you want in those positions making public policy. Uh, these are, even though people say they come from February to May, they're really year-round year uh, positions that require a lot of time and responsibility. So I think when you take all of that in consideration that this was a fair calculation and a fair uh, salary scale that they came up with. Nicole. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been over 10 years since they last got a raise. And as we look to a more and more diverse legislature and how we um, allow folks who represent everyday Oklahomans to have a chance in that office, I think we, we have to pay folks for what is really a full-time job that long kind of the narrative has been, um, as Neva said, that it's really part-time work. But I think the, the reality is, I mean, interim sessions going on right now, people are expected to be back home in their districts talking to voters and getting input and talking with people ahead of uh, a new round of legislation this spring. Um, and we, we really have to pay people for full-time work because there are few careers that allow you to take a, a break from February to May every year. Well, and one of the things that's been said over and over again is that at the pay scale that it was, what you were getting were either people right out of college, uh, that this was an entry-level position and a good position, uh, you know, salary-wise, or someone at the end of their career, or someone that was uh, uh, wealthy or in a position where they could take the time off and have true public service and not be, you know, not be concerned about the, uh, the salary that went along with it, period. So, I think that this is always a struggle in any legislature across the country. I mean, uh, you are always going to have folks that say anything that, that they get paid is too much, and you're going to have folks that say uh, it's always going to be public service, and whatever they get paid, they're they're going to spend time far beyond that in terms of, of their service back in the district as well as here at the, at the Capitol. Do you hope that, Nicole, that more people will be maybe become legislators now that the pay is a little bit more equitable? I, I hope so. I hope it makes it a, a reality for more folks, especially as we look to, um, you know, to trying to expand diversity among queer representation and mm -hmm. among folks of color. Um, we look at, you know, single parents and, and the voices that we'd like to hear from more in our legislature. I think this pay bump makes it a little more of a reality for everyday Oklahomans. Mm -hmm. and, and ironically, uh, you had you had teachers that were elected in the last session that actually took a pay cut to, to become a legislator. And I think that was, again, one of those reality checks of uh, people don't pay much attention to what the uh, uh, the salaries are in many industries and businesses and even in government. But in this instance, where you have lawmakers uh, uh, doing a, a full-time job, 
working with people in state time, state uh, employees in full-time positions making far more than that, there had to be some equity, I think, uh, come to bear. And as representatives, they're still not just, they're not just at the Capitol. They're out meeting their, their people. They're going to town hall meetings. They're doing all things you see other elected Constitu- officials. Yeah, constituent services are, are, are a significant portion of that work that they do that's kind of behind the scenes that no one pays much attention to, but clearly is very, very important. The state Supreme Court gives the go-ahead to MAPS 4. Justices unanimously rejected a challenge from former Oklahoma City Councilman Ed Shadid and declared the ordinance constitutional. They say it doesn't violate the single subject rule or the city's ordinance. Nicole, what do you think of this ruling? Um, I mean, I think it's definitely one that gets a little bit into the weeds on things. Um, (laughs) Some of the things people don't love about politics. Um, But I think that the important takeaway here is that for the Supreme Court, it was a, a unanimous decision. And they said at the end of the day, what they were looking at was the ordinance. Um, and that is what they had to take into consideration. Um, I, I think anytime we think that there could be a violation of a single subject rule, challenging that is important. I think it is keeping that intact is really critical to ensure that there's not log rolling going forward. Um, but it seems here that, that they're ready for this, uh, this to move forward. Aniva, you hit the ha- nail on the head last week when you said it was, it was one ordinance that, was the, that didn't cover these projects, but basically set up systems to where these projects were. That's right. Set up the framework to be able to have the money come, come along and be able to have these projects, have them debt-free over a period of years by designating uh, the uh, extension of the sales tax if it passes to these, to these 16 or whatever number of projects that finally come about. So, you know, I think, I think it's good news for the city of Oklahoma City. Uh, as the mayor said, it, it, it gives the city the ability to continue the, the renaissance. It is, it's been a proven tremendous success story for Oklahoma City and I think uh, the unanimous as you say 10-page opinion that clearly not only sets this for the city of Oklahoma City but is significant for all cities and municipalities when they are challenged with similar um, uh, similar uh, uh, legal challenges to things that they may be doing in their communities. And Nicole while there might be some negative things that people don't care for like the soccer stadium or the money to the thunder there's a lot of social issues that are being dealt within this MAPS 4. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, at the end of the day, like the social piece is really important for a lot of folks. Um, But the root of the challenge also, right, was that you're asking people to sort of vote for one thing that they really like and maybe a lot of things that they don't um, or a lot of things they really like and and throwing in one thing they really don't. Um, But, but I mean, they... Supreme Court says it's it's the ordinance and it all falls into pieces and so it'll I think it'll be an interesting election. Well, I think when you talk about it being an election, it is incumbent upon the city uh, and the folks that are supporting this to make their case why this this group of projects is something that uh, is is uh, worthy of consideration and support by the citizens. And that's what's happened ever since uh, you know 26 years ago with the original maps. I mean, there was a vision, there were a set of projects, and there was a great uh, effort to bring uh, kind of the entire community and all the different parts together uh, to get, you know, pieces that they wanted, knowing that that it took the collective effort of everyone to make it a reality. Right. I've never seen a maps that didn't have some things that you liked Absolutely. and some things that you didn't. It just kind of goes with how we've been doing it for almost 30 years now. The state Republican Party is facing financial woes amid disputes between its leadership. The organization is reportedly $25,000 in debt when six months ago it had a balance of $10,000. 
Meanwhile, there appears to be a rift between Chairman David McLean and Vice Chairman Mike Turner. Neva, what's going on here? Well, it's party politics, and I don't <laughs> care whether whether it's Republicans or Democrats. We can all tell the stories, and they've gone on for decades, and will go on as long as I think we're around talking about it. Uh, whether you have financial problems or personality conflicts, uh, uh, the, the the party issues, policy issues, whatever it happens to be, it's the nature of the beast. And I think uh, it, it always gives a good headline. It always gives some good chatter and conversation. But really, I mean, most of this, I think, uh, whether we're talking Republicans or Democrats, uh, I think the the folks that are involved uh, largely would like to see most of this aired behind, you know, kind of behind closed doors in their uh, uh, in their effort to just do what they are, you know, tasked to do as opposed as a as uh, opposed to kind of splashing it out there in in headlines and trying to sensationalize it, so I think I think it's a larger problem that parties across the country and in Oklahoma are facing, in that it is very challenging to uh, it's challenging to uh, get volunteers to be involved in the party. It's 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 challenging for uh, longtime donors to stay with the party because what we've seen is the migration to giving directly to candidates, directly to causes, directly to state questions directly to issues that they care about and are are less likely to be using the uh, framework of the parties. There is a role for the party. And uh, um, I think when both parties are strong, I mean, it gives a platform for the ideas to be advanced and for uh, for them to be much more successful in their recruitment efforts of candidates and other things. So I, th- I think we're we're dealing and looking at something, as I say, that's an age-old problem, but something that is uh, noteworthy for the folks that are involved to uh, kind of stop, pay attention to, and take care of. Nicole? Yeah, I think we're kind of at an interesting point in time in party politics that as people sort of see this broad identity as more and more partisan, both in like a national and state lens, that people are also moving away from the identity of the party itself. Um, And I think especially as candidates are able to reach more donors and volunteers sort of on individual levels through emails and text messages and on social media, that people get more excited about a single candidate than the work of the party, because oftentimes the work of the party is long and tough and behind the scenes. It's recruiting candidates and training them and training leadership and working on messaging. Um, and those things sort of, I think, in most people's minds fit into that like partisan divide piece and something that they want to, at least in identity politics, sort of move away from. Um, and so I think that the Neva's right that this isn't a problem unique to the Republican Party or the Oklahoma Republican Party, um, that this is sort of a, a nationwide issue that parties are having and it will be interesting in the next few years, I think, to see whether these parties are able to sort of maintain structure and find new ways to bring donors in, or if we see just a, a real shift to kind of individual candidate giving continue. And, and I think one of the things that both parties struggle with is you have the potential for the fringes, as as it's often referred to, in each party to want to hijack or co-op the the process and be the be kind of the majority voice. Where you have uh, in in the Republican ranks, you have many people in Oklahoma, as we know, that uh, are registered Republican, vote Republican, uh, but are um, they don't necessarily identify with the need to go to the traditional framework of uh, precinct meetings and a, and a and a process where they engage and have their voice voice heard in that way. And I think um, in either in either party, when you have 
when you have this kind of highly charged rhetoric and, and kind of fringe activity going on sometimes, it, it makes people pause and want to step back. So I think the more that we, that we uh, really see an effort to broadly engage more people in the party process, uh, the more successful the parties are. And I think that's where the challenge is in the days ahead. Supporters of a petition to expand Medicaid say they have reached the goal of 178,000 signatures to get the issue on the ballot in 2020. Organizers say despite finishing a couple weeks before the October 28th deadline, petitioners will continue gathering signatures to make sure they have enough. Nicole, how do you think this will impact next year's election? Um, I mean, I think it's it's an exciting thing um, for both the folks on the ground who are collecting signatures and to really make everyone feel like they're part of something that has a chance of winning. That momentum and finishing ahead of a deadline is great. Um, it, it's always important, I think, as as we well know, to continue collecting those signatures to make sure that they're all valid, they're above the threshold. Um, but I am I'm glad to see people really talking about Medicaid expansion. I'm glad that this is an, an issue that resonates with so many people. I think that it's unfortunate that it does in some ways because it means that so many people are, are really craving just any access to health care that exists. Um, but I think it's a, it's a good sign for what we're going to see um, with this ballot measure moving forward. Neva, You know, I think it's interesting. I think, first of all, you have to applaud the efforts of any, uh, any uh, state question a movement that is able to go out there and energize and and uh, create a message that people respond to, uh, and I think they've done uh, by their own uh, by their own numbers an excellent job not only of getting the the needed signatures but going beyond that as uh, Nicole says so that they that they in all likelihood will be able to sustain any type of challenge to the uh, to the petitions themselves and the signatures, and so as we look. To next year, and we look to the potential of this being on the ballot. I think the looming question is: uh, Is there really going to be a significant effort to uh, to have a real contest, a real battle over trying to uh, uh, defeat uh, the, the state question? And I think that remains to be seen. People say yes, there will be an effort. Yes, there, you know, there are folks that will come forward and groups that will want to fully fund uh, an effort to stop this from becoming part of the state constitution and all of the uh, ramifications that come with that in terms of the uh, just the impact on the on the budget and the numbers so I think it I think it can be a very spirited contest down the road but it's going to take uh, it's going to take engagement from uh, from folks that so far have not kind of come forward and I think the other element to this that we've talked about before is the fact that the legislature has been somewhat uh, uh, continues to uh, remain somewhat removed from this process and not really engage even in the interim studies I mean it was lackluster in terms of uh, uh, the conversation in those uh, committees in terms of alternative ideas or what might be done to uh, uh, to bring folks back to the table and and try to see if something uh, something else could be done other than just the the effort that's being uh, kind of put forward right now with this with this state question and Nicole I saw it reminds me so much of the medical marijuana law where right before the petition was going to be out and people were going to vote on it the year that session before the lawmakers were trying to to find some way to to battle it to come up with some kind of legalized marijuana and they're trying to do that right now in the legislature but do you see this legislature doing anything to kind of go against the expansion of medicaid um i mean i think that nothing i've seen so far indicates that they're gonna get their act together <laughs> to do that um i mean i think that we see over and over again that voters are willing to be more bold 
um, and straightforward in their actions than the folks that they elect. Um, and I think that especially when this is out in the public and people are weighing in on it in a real way, legislators, in my experience, I've seen be a little more timid to then step into that space for fear of what it might do to their voters, especially going into an election year um, where so many of them are going to be on the ballot themselves. Um, so I, I really think that with momentum moving forward, um, unless we see a really strong kind of opposition come out and real dialogue engaged that way, that um, that the legislature is not going to move on this. And the, and the wild card in the, in the equation could be the governor uh, who, you know, as we know, mm -hmm. has stated that he's not supportive of this g general concept and, and uh, uh, idea, but whether he would use the executive order, as we've seen him be very, uh, you know, very forthright uh, uh, to this point and kind of doing some things that uh, were uh, not that predicted. Uh, it would be interesting to see if he has something in in mind that he's not uh, really uh, kind of stepped forward and and done yet that may throw a real wrench in kind of this whole process and may in fact one could argue potentially bring all of it back to the courts long before it's even on a ballot and do you think that the the, the, the lawmakers though can actually do something this this spring well I mean the lawmakers have every opportunity to <laughs> to come into session um, just as the governor in a state of the state would have the opportunity to uh, lay forward a plan uh, of action that uh, that he believes would be the right uh, the right direction to go for the state. So I th I think there's still the opportunity there. I think as Nicole said, I mean as 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 people observe and watch, there seems to be no real movement. So if it's going on, it's very quiet and and being uh, very carefully and quietly orchestrated uh, uh, behind closed doors right now, which is you know how you begin to develop something. It's not to say that's sinister. It's just it has to happen at some point, and and we'll be at uh, we'll be at the opening day of session before we blink. So uh, time is of the essence when they start to talk about this subject. A controversial state senator is leaving the legislature for a chance at Congress. Broken Bow Republican Senator Joseph Silk announced he will enter the 2020 Republican primary for District 2, currently held by Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen. Now, Mullen hasn't officially announced his re-election, but Neva, what do you think of Silk's plan? Well, first of all, I think every indication Mark Wayne Mullen will run for re-election. Uh, he's a four-term incumbent, very popular in the 2nd District, uh, someone that won a, a very competitive primary when he first uh, took office, went to Congress. So, I mean, he's had challenges. I think, you know, I think, again, this is a situation where you have someone, the question is, can they mount a... a a really credible campaign can they raise money can they build an organization and you know just to say basically I'm going to change and now run for Congress because I think we've got a bunch of uh, uh, folks in this in the Senate that are uh, moderate or not really doing uh, what I think they should be doing and not uh, hearing the legislation that I'm laying out there here's someone who had his uh, committee vice chairmanship taken away someone that not a single bill was heard on the the Senate floor I mean so uh, he he has been uh, ostracized and kind of relegated to the sidelines because of his uh, uh, really uh, kind of because of what he's done during his time in the state senate and I don't really see uh, an opportunity at least on the front end for him to you know springboard into very much uh, 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 very much of a campaign that's going to get a lot of attention or a lot of uh, uh, a lot of fundraising success but uh, time will tell. Nicole. Um, I think if if Cinder Silk is unhappy with liberal leadership in the Oklahoma legislature. He's going to be in for a, a real surprise when he learns about Congress. 
Um, but I, I, I think I agree with Neva here that, um, I mean, he's someone who seems to not only have made a, an enemy out of, you know, Democrats in the Senate, but also within his own party mm -hmm. made some some real enemies as well. And when I think about fundraising, especially at the level that it takes to, to mount a congressional campaign, and especially then at the level it takes to mount a congressional campaign against an incumbent, um, that it is a, a really big lift um, that's going to take a lot of dollars. And I don't know if he has the, the sort of political capital um, or relationships left to do that. Also, when you think about Eastern, uh, the second district, that's Eastern Oklahoma. That's a huge district. It's a huge district, 30 plus counties, maybe 32 yeah. counties. It goes all the way from the Northeast, all the way down to his uh, kind of his uh, part of the, uh, the, the state in, in yeah. Broken Bow and, and in the very Southeast corner. But, you know, here here's here's a situation where he now has made, uh, made his position known that he wants to run for Congress. So you already have the scramble going on for his legislative seat. I mean, so it's not, you, when you lay it out there, you better be ready to move on because uh, there's a lot of conversation, whether it'll be Representative uh, Johnny Tadlock, who uh, uh, would be, you know, one of the one of the most prominent names being mentioned right now to, you know, move over and run for the Senate seat from, from the House, someone who switched from Democrat to Republican, very popular in that area, a former sheriff, or someone else. So uh, it has implications when you start thinking and talking about moving, you know, new, moving to uh, another um, another uh, place to run for office, then the one you're leaving behind, you really are very quickly leaving behind as other people start looking at it. And I want to touch on this briefly because uh, Mark Wayne Mullen promised that he would only be a three-term congressman. He's now in his fourth term and actually caught some flack for running for a fourth term and now possibly running for a fifth term. Could that affect him in a primary? Well, I think it comes up. I think it comes up in a primary. I think, um, you know, I think this is, in my view, one of the uh, instances where um, oftentimes, particularly in first campaigns, people get pigeonholed into uh, making commitments and signing uh, signing pledges that, uh, uh, as they look back, they probably reflect and think, maybe I shouldn't have done that. So, uh, because you are locking yourself in without any, any ability to maneuver, and oftentimes you're doing it not not really with a, a, a realistic view of, of of where you come to and what you want to do long term. So he, he's withstood that test before, you know, in, in previous elections. So I, I think while someone might try to beat him up on it a little bit, I don't think it's something that ultimately would defeat him. And District 2 not been held by a Democrat since Dan Boren. Uh, do you think the Democrats can, can put someone to could even face off against Mark Wayne Mullen? Um, I, I, I always love to see it. I always love um, <laughs> when folks are, are willing to sort of mount that challenge and, and engage in that discourse. Um, I think it's important to have candidates in every race um, and, and really have a discussion and an option available to voters. Um, I, I do think, though, that Mullen has held that, that seat pretty handily. Um, it is a tough district, um, as Neva mentioned, because it is so large mm -hmm. um, to really engage voters in um, in several different media markets um, in, in a lot of really rural areas that are difficult to get to um, and do sort of that face-to-face -face interaction. Um, and so I think that if a, a Democrat's going to have a, a real chance there, um, it means announcing sometime very soon. Well, <laughs> it, and it means a couple of other things. In a presidential year where you had, uh, uh, where you had uh, uh, Trump 
carry all 77 counties in Oklahoma last time, with his numbers being still off the charts high in Oklahoma right now in terms of uh, 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 electability and, and, and in, a, in a reelect, I think that does have tremendous impact, particularly when you're looking in that part of the state and you see the trend that has been overwhelmingly trending Republican, uh, not only at the top of the ballot, but all the way down to the courthouse level. So uh, it makes for a difficult, you know, I think it makes for a difficult prospect for a Democrat to, to look at, without a lot of money, challenging uh, 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 Congressman Mullen. But the other, the other issue is uh, the Democrats clearly have the focus of trying to hold on to the one seat uh, that they have right now, and that's the 5th District seat. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a fascinating year, and this just throws another wrinkle in if it, if it begins to materialize that we have a competitive race in the 2nd District. Nicole and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.